fascinating exercise to think about people, what others who aren't familiar with the Christian story or don't believe it might make of this text. Um, so let's think together uh, now, not just about what people out there think, but as you listen to this text, as you thought about it, what questions does it raise in your mind? You could also look it up on your own device so you could see it, but because like there's only a few verses on each one here. Blah, blah, blah. I'll just refresh your memories. You may have no questions that it raises. Heaps of questions. Okay, well, yell out some questions so then I can have something to talk about. I mean, so then we can learn together. Okay. Can I explain the Trinity in the incarnation? And the incarnation. Yep, I was planning to do just that. I've, I'll have that. It'll only take a couple of minutes and we'll be sweet. Okay, so the Trinity and the incarnation. Okay, good. We've got that sorted. Uh, so there we go Trinity and incarnation. As I think it was Augustine said, uh, the person who tries to, the person who denies the Trinity will lose their soul. The person who tries to understand it will lose their mind. <laughs> Isn't that encouraging? Um, but I've got, a, I've got some thoughts on that, as you, you no doubt expect. Any other, what other questions? Yeah, other questions? Yeah, Rolf. Does the meaning refer back to the meaning of our universe or our Yeah, what's the nature of the beginning? What, what is the referent of the beginning? That's a really good question. Yeah, yeah, it does in the beginning. It's rather confusing. Verse one, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, the word. Yep, there was the word before the Bible. Yeah, what do we mean by the word? That's awesome. Yeah, other thoughts. Yeah, this is good. By the way, if you don't ask your questions now and you leave here with unanswered questions and a feeling of deep frustration, that's on you. <laughs> Just putting it out there because I don't know what your questions are. If you ask good questions, I'll try and answer them. If they're stupid questions, I'll also try and answer them. It's, just, it's great. It helps us. Oh, the husband's will. Oh, geez. You know what I just said before? Yeah, ignore all of that. <laughs> you might leave deeply unsatisfied with the answer. <laughs> what is that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what he's going to leave the husband's will last. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a proto-feminist reading of the text would say, uh, I don't have a clue. Okay, we'll see if we get to that. That's great. I would never have thought of that as a burning question reading it from my perspective is interesting what are any other questions okay now we're all good let's have a let's have a think about this right so and the frame the the way to approach this text is um to think about what is the intent of the author so contrary 
the, the way to approach this, contrary to much of the literary theory and the stuff you might have come across in universities and in high school literature classes since the Second World War, the intent of the author is really significant in understanding and making meaning from the text. So there's been a bit of a move. It's the philosophically part of this move of anti-realism that says the meaning of the text is disconnected from the intent of the author. So we can make any text mean whatever we want it to mean, basically. And there's a move in literary theory around that. It's part of the same broad anti-realist philosophical current that says all of reality and all knowledge is just a social construct. We can make the world mean whatever we want it to mean. I can, I can, uh, and, and we see that at the pointy end in our con uh, current social debate around a gender identity and gender fluidity. We're non-binary. I can now, for the purposes of this uh, morning, identify as a woman. Um, and I don't, I just, it's just because that's what I really feel I am. And there is no external referent that determines the truth of my statement. Now that broad philosophical mood is also applied in literature where we say, oh, the author's intent doesn't mean anything. Now, now we know that that's not true. None of us can live that way, right? None of us can live that way. We all know there is a real world that does impinge on us and that we have to conform our desires and thoughts to the nature of reality if we want to flourish. And it's the same with reading a book well. You, you can come up with other meanings, but you've first got to grapple with what on earth do we think the author was on about? Um, and of course, this is very important, for example, in areas of the law. You can't just go, well, when the judge made this determination and wrote it down, we think that she meant I could kill whoever I wanted to kill, because that's what I think today. Who, this oppressive patriarchal judicial system tells me I can't, but I'm free to come up with my own interpretation. So there's a bit of that, and typically we only apply that to texts and bits of reality that impinge upon our own freedom or delusions of control. Okay, so, so, that's, so that's the philosophical scene setting. What does the, what's the, the, in the beauty of John's gospel is that we're told what the author's intent is. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Jesus did a bunch of stuff, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. And you go, yep, okay, I believe that. And that by believing, you may have life, life in his name. So one of the reasons that I love John's gospel is it's so clear to say this is exactly how we're meant to read it. This is the meaning and the impact it's meant to have in our lives. That as, as we think about this text, even though it, it raises lots of good questions, the husband's will, the Trinity, the word, the incarnation, the beginning, black holes, um, the, the nature of ultimate reality. The point of it all is that we have life. That, that, and John, John's gospel unpack this. He talks about it as eternal life. Now that, that heaven, life lived the way God intends it to be lived. This is to be ours now. We're to live into this now. So whether you have been a follower of Jesus for the last 70 years, 
or whether you are just checking it out and you're not sure about the whole God and spirituality thing, the text, this, this gospel, as we read it and think it and pray it together, is meant to help us live and live well. And John's gospel will explain what that looks like, but I'll give you a heads up. Life in his name means at its fundamental essence, a life of love, love of God, love of other, love of self. So that's what it is. Like that's the, that's the simplicity. That's the essence of it. We make Christianity terribly complicated. And the Trinity is very complicated philosophically and intellectually. Ultimate origins are very complicated. And you go, yeah, well, that's really exciting. I love thinking about that stuff. And I hope at least one or two of you will as well, because otherwise the next 20 minutes is going to be a little boring. Um, but it's all actually meant to move us to live lives of love. It's really quite simple. So if so, that's the stance with which we are to come to this. Okay, makes sense. All right, let's go back to the text. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, so which beginning are we talking about? Well, the beginning of the creation of this reality, I would suggest. Uh, it does seem uh, that there, this reality was created, this world as we know it, was created in the context of of other realities, of a spiritual reality, of a heavenly court, of a cosmic rebellion against God. Uh, now, how cosmologists in our day and age might think about that in terms of black holes and energy and so on, I don't have a view. But it does seem like there was, there, there was pre-existence and, and energy. And what God did was he transformed the energy that was pre-existing in some way into this matter that we experience in this world. And, uh, and in that pre-existing uncreated beginning was the word. And you go, okay, what was the word? It wasn't the Bible. The word is, uh, a wor is the reference to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, whom we are to believe in. So John's gospel is going to make really clear that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, which takes us straight to the question of, Mark, can you please explain the Trinity and the Incarnation? So here's a little picture to help you understand the Trinity. What? It is not connecting here. I might have to just disconnect here. Why am I not? Sorry, I'm just changing devices. Where is that showing? Maybe if I have to stop this mirroring here, start the mirroring here. It's better. It's wrong. Oh, well, so we can't do the Trinity today. <laughs> Interpretive dance. So what we 
sorry, I'm just, this is, conf I feel like this. In the beginning when IT worked, no. So if you will gather around here, you can look at it on my screen. Oh, this is very annoying. Um, so the simple answer is, uh, we'll have to get, oh, this won't work. This picture works extremely well when the IT works. Ah, I wonder if, you know how hard it is to solve IT problems in front of a waiting crowd? Do you? Yeah, as a school teacher. That's why I've got a whiteboard. That's why. <laughs> Thanks for that incredibly helpful suggestion. Actually, it is quite helpful. I can probably do this on a whiteboard. Okay, here we go. So what you can do, it, it it comes with pretty pictures. Here's God. God. So fussy. You want to see this as well now? Jeez. Hang on. Hang on. Jeez. Tough crowd this morning. You're not happy about what? Aren't you? You're not happy about Apple? Okay. There we go. We're up. We're, we're, we're cooking with something. There's God in the middle, right? And you can think of the father, the son, in this instance, the word, and uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay. And uh, the father is God. The son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. You all get that picture, right? The Holy Spirit... is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So what we can say, the typical formulation to understand the Trinity, is by saying what it isn't, what it is and what it isn't, and then the philosophers go into endless detail to try and understand and unpack all of this. But what the Bible is really clear about is that the Father and the Son are separate, the Son and the Holy Spirit are separate, the Father and the Son are separate, the Holy Spirit and uh, the Father and the Son, there are separate uh, persons. The language of personhood was then introduced by the uh, early church fathers. Um, but it's one being. So uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are all one being and three persons. So the Word, Jesus, was with God and the Word was God. Okay. Um, now, how exactly does that work? I don't know. But does it mean that it doesn't work? No. Let me ask, I will show you how, why, why this is quite easy to appreciate and understand. Uh, how exactly does the uh, dual nature of light as a wave and a particle actually work? Does anyone here understand that? No. 
And because like me, you probably heard about this at science, in high school, you probably don't even realize now that no one thinks that wave ever is a particle, that light ever is a particle. It's only ever waves but waves that come in particle-like form. So it's so complicated, but at a very, very basic level, we don't understand most of reality, but it works. I take comfort when it comes to God that that is how it works. So is that, that's a profoundly, it, it may be a profoundly unsatisfying answer, but it's the best I can do. If, if the IT worked, I, I would explain it all. <laughs> but, you know, what can I say? <laughs> Okay, now, uh, all good, uh, come back at me if that's not good. So then we say, okay, what happened was, in this text, we see uh, this wonderful description of God uh, and his nature, and um, we see that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The second person of the Trinity, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, it actually means is that God is a community, a relational being. The heart of reality is relational. See, this is, this is actually profoundly important. Um, practically, every uh, ultimate reality is all about relationships. Um, and we need to understand that. Other, other conceptions of the universe reduce ultimate reality to a single being. So, so every other religion, you end up with a God or ultimate reality that is a monad or a single being. So in Islam, Allah is uh, one God, okay? And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, um, it means that love is not central to the universe because love is about relationship. So in, uh, so in Islam, God is not love. God is a single being. Uh, what that means for us, the Christian conception of reality says that you can hold together the one and the many. There's a way of understanding the fundamental nature of reality. It exists, there is the one God. I am one. I have one being, I'm me, I'm separate from you, but I am also inextricably connected to you. So I am who I am by virtue of my relationships, but for relationships to actually be ultimate, there has to be a way of thinking together the one and the many. I'm one, I'm separate from you, but I'm also constituted by you. It is what is called a Trinitarian personalist ontology. Ontology is the nature, the study of being. Ontos is the Greek word for being. So it's answering the question, what is the nature of the world really like? And it's really, it's really all about relationships. Now, do you want to know some, do you want to know how deeply embedded this is into our human experience? You all should nod at this point. Yes, okay. Uh, uh, to understand this, you have to understand what I was doing while we were on holidays in Fiji. So how so, Mark? Well, when I was on holidays in Fiji, I sat at the side of a very lovely pool for five or six hours a day, and I read. And you say, oh, Mark, wow. He said, how's that got anything to do with God? Well, do you know what I read? You say, no, I have no idea, Mark. Won't you please tell me what you read sitting on the side of the pool in Fiji on holidays? 
I read a, I read a book. Uh, I'm in the process of reading a book. It's 3,000 pages of uh, neuroanatomy and psychology and philosophy by the world's leading psychiatrist and philosopher on the bi-hemisphere nature of the human brain. Our brains have two hemispheres. And this is a very technical book um, full of endless case studies on the nature of the brain. Yeah, you're all feeling sorry for Margo now and you're going, uh, why, Lord, why? Yeah. Well, and, and because I'm also a teacher, Margo would come and sit next to me and I'd want to start telling her all this stuff. And it was very, so now I'm here, I can tell all of you. I can bore you as much as I bored Margo. Okay. We have two hemispheres in the brain. The, the research at the moment and the hypothesis is that each of those two hemispheres uh, have a, a vastly different ways of functioning in the world. And, uh, and you can imagine here's the left hemisphere, here's the right hemisphere. It's a slightly deformed, our right hemisphere is in, a, is in a car accident where a lot of the research comes about from damaged brains. So, um, so, the, so the left hemisphere, um, is actually all about the singular um, and about the object because the major function that, that, that beings like us have to accomplish is we have to find food, which re requires relentless focus on the one thing, while at the same time avoid becoming food for something else. So from very, very primitive beings, sentient beings, they've developed two hemispheres in the brain to deal with both those important functions. One, focus on the single thing. Get that nut or the berry or the cockroach or the rat or the woolly mammoth. And on the other hand, I've got, to have, I've got to be scanning my horizon all the time to see what is going on in the world. Okay? Guess what? The right hemisphere is all about relationships and everything that goes into that. So the right hemisphere of our brains are oriented to see all the connections and that ultimate reality is all about relationships. And when the right hemisphere is damaged in all kinds of ways, what happens is we lose all the ability to actually build meaningful relationships while we can still focus and, and function like computers and access individual data. Wired in to the structure of our brains is a Trinitarian personalist ontology that, that actually, you know what, you've got to focus on the singular, you've got to understand the parts, the, the, the one, but yet to live in this world, you have to understand that, that it's all about relationships. And in fact, the key, this whole, his 3000 page hypothesis is one of the major problems in our culture is we have become dumb because we have become left brain dominant culturally, which is a scientific way of focusing on the, the detail, the detail, the one, the one, the one, the one. And we've lost sight and ability to understand the whole relationally, to understand the world and the context that makes sense of all of this stuff. And you say, is there any data to support this? Yes, there's been a steady decline in IQ tests in our culture over the last 50 years. So I love being able to say to our kids now, you're dumber than my generation. Isn't that interesting? 
And what he says is it's not on the questions that are left brain related around details and calculations. What is declined is the ability of our brains to process relationships and holes. Um, and there's all, and he develops a whole bunch of theses around this. And I just thought about this. I thought that's, the, the Bible has it all right from the start in this unbelievably profound understanding that, that the one matters, God, the one. But it's always one in community, in relationships. And the relationships, the connections, the community matters. And this is incredibly significant for our culture. Left hemisphere, individualistic, competitive, uh, capitalist society. And you go, no, no, actually, John 1, 1 says, no, I exist in a world where relationships are ultimate. It's not just me, it's not just you, it's us. Uh, in African philosophy, in, in causal philosophy, the phrase they use is umuntu ngumuntu ngabantu, which says persons are persons through other persons. So non-Western, non-left hemisphere, non-scientific cultures still can still hold a far more personalist way of understanding reality. Now, now, at its extreme, that, of course, has problems because I can never be an individual. I can never separate myself from the family. I can never create private wealth. I can, it can have many, many downsides in the same way that radical competitive individualism has. But Christianity has a way of holding those two together. The one God and the many, Father, Son, and Spirit. The one you, the many us. And they have to be held together, which is John's gospel. And increasingly, I think about this. Um, it's, a, it's an ontology of the both and, not the either or. So, so much of our culture and our world wants to push us into binary either ors. And actually, the Bible and reality is far more left, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, detail focus, uh, global relational reality, one God, three persons. And let's think a little more as we wrap this up, um, because we're just on verse one. Um, uh, verse two, uh, in, or verse four, in him was life, and that light was the light of all mankind. So Jesus, God, is described in transpersonal terms as giving light to all of mankind, everyone. God's light shines into all of reality. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the dark, darkness is absence of light. Sin is absence of good. Evil is absence of good. It doesn't have an existence at one level by itself. It's when there is no light that you have darkness. And so there is a truth that God is a transpersonal, like he's not completely reduced to just the personal. And in that capacity as the transpersonal creator, God's light shines everywhere in the world. So when you go to work tomorrow or you go home this afternoon, God's light will be shining into your workplace, into the hearts and the minds and the lives and the processes and the systems of all the secular people you will go to work with. Another way of putting this is 
The heavens declare the glory of God. Another way to put this is God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. His grace and his energy, that's the other, the other metaphor behind light, is energy, is universally available. God loves everyone and his light shines in everyone. Make sense? So you can go in on a Darling Street cafe and you can say, you know, you can assume that God is shining his light into everyone's life. Isn't that cool? And that's true in every other religion, by the way. The light of God is shining in Islam. The light of God is shining in Buddhism, in Shintoism, and in radical individualist secularism, in capitalism. The light of God is shining in Russia today, in crazy Christo-nationalism. The light of God is shining amongst the Shia and the Sunni. It's pretty cool. And you say, but Mark, ah, ah, what, 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 what? Do I need to ring the bishop right now and say, beep, 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 heresy alert, heresy alert? Or do I need to ring the Sydney Morning Herald and say, yes, we finally got a rector who embraces all religions and understands that we're all just the same? No, neither is true. In, a, in an either or binary world, yes. But look what it goes on to say. It says, the light shines in darkness. The darkness hasn't overcome it. Um, We'll jump over that. Um, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then it says he was in the world, though the world was made through him. The world didn't recognize him. So the light is shining. But we choose not to live in it and we choose not to see it. You can choose darkness. And so he comes in transpersonally. Here's where we get to the incarnation, Robin. He comes, God is revealed transpersonally, light, energy, life everywhere. People reject it. They don't want anything to do with it. So then what he does is he says, I'm going to become personal. I'm going to step into the world as a person. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So you've got to receive the light. And we receive the light in its personal form, not as a generic revelation of God. We receive the light personally. The word, that same word who's present in all creation, that same word who is the life and the light of the world, that same word who shines everywhere, but is very often rejected. That word then says, that word then comes personally. The one Imperson, transpersonal light comes as the personal. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God is everywhere. And God is specifically located in Jesus. God shines his light on everyone but God comes to those who will receive him. That's it. So if you are a Shia Muslim, 
God's light shines on you. And when he comes to you in a dream, in a village in Iran, and Jesus speaks to you in your dream, and you receive him, then you become a child of God. And this is happening. He comes personally, and we have to receive him. But he's still shining on everyone. And he loves everyone, and he's the light of everyone. But he comes personally. So the question is, for, for each and every human being, including most particularly those of us here right now, is have we received him? Are we receiving him? Are we engaging day by day, moment by moment, with the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ as person? And then, this is for next Sunday, how do we reflect that light and live that life into the world? Because this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Think back to all our songs today. They're all, this, this metaphor is so powerful, but have you received? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for the incredible profundity and width and, and, and depth in this text. And I pray that you will help us to receive you and receiving you to have life, to live lives of love, love of you, love of others, love of our enemies, love of ourselves. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, come. Come into our lives afresh. Soften our hearts. Reveal yourself to us afresh that we can have life in your name. And we ask this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.